Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore Police Sergeant. In most episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Visit our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. This episode of Law Enforcement Today brought to you by Galls.com. We're thrilled to have them on board, sponsoring episodes of our podcast and radio show, sponsoring our app, lots Everything, of great things. Everything, Jay. And, and you know me, my big feeling is, is support those who support law enforcement. And Galls has stepped up to the plate. They're supporting us. And we need to support them. And they've been in business for 50 years. 50 years serving first responders and law enforcement community. They're industry leaders. They've got a huge online catalog. Everything you could ever want. Goals.com. Check them out. Their catalog is spectacular. Everything for even like a retired guy like me to active guy like Robert. Men, women, they've got everything you could ever need between tactical gear, clothing, footwear, badges, handcuff keys. They've got everything. Also, be sure to check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Joining us on the phone, we've got a world-famous expert in the field of narco-terrorism. You getting me excited already, I, You know, that just, that just, I, if that doesn't impress you, I don't know what will. Joining us, Jeffrey James Higgins. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm doing great. That's quite an introduction. Thank uh, you very much. You know, when I hear things like that, I know what that means. But when people see or hear about it on television and radio, if they're not involved in law enforcement, they often go, wow, that's really impressive. And it is impressive. But you have a very... <laughs> Thank you so much. It, it is. But it's like, I'm not trying to say that, that we're not impressed. We are. But I think most people outside of law enforcement don't have a really firm grasp on the idea of what narco-terrorism is and what it's all about. They, they underplay it. They're about to, to find out. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You know, and I, I think uh, they're going to be hearing a lot more about narco-terrorism. You know, uh, President Trump recently was talking about our new strategy in Afghanistan and talking about how it's where most of the world's heroin come from, comes from. And it's also the um, highest concentration of terrorist groups in the world in, in Southwest Asia, the area around Afghanistan. So I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about it over the next couple of years. And not to be getting into politics, but for the last few years, they've been leaving the poppy fields that are so prevalent in Afghanistan, which is where heroin and the opiates come from alone. They've not been messing with them have they meaning our forces well there's well, not our military forces but there's been eradication programs that operate through the uh, INL which is part of the US State Department but there it's always been a, a, a strategic kind of uh, area of contention between people who want to try to get a handle on the opium uh, trade and destroy the poppy fields which is what which all opiates are created from the from the um, opium which comes out of these poppies and with the people who are concerned about the farmers who are you know trying to make a livelihood trying to live in one of the poorest countries in the world so there's always been that battle back and forth but i mean obviously if you're going to allow poppy fields to exist there's going to be a thriving uh, opium trade and right now we have a opium problem in the United States. We have record-setting numbers of overdose deaths uh, of every walk of life. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know it's, it's it's they're calling it the opioid crisis, right? So opiates are things like opium and morphine and heroin that come from the uh, poppy plant, and then you have opioids, which which are synthetic opiates. 
So things like fentanyl and carfentanil, and you've probably heard a lot about these analogs, which which are being made, and it's it's causing a real health crisis in this country right now. It's definitely at an epidemic proportion. If you look at the percentages of of people every year that that are overdosing on this stuff, it's right now drug overdoses in the U.S. are are the number one cause of death by injury. So it's a really serious healthcare issue. So Jeffrey, before we dig deep into narco terrorism god it's even sounds cool when i say it? it yeah you should uh, say it with like with an accent i can't do that like a scarface let me introduce you to my narco terrorism <laughs> friend <laughs> but anyway jeffrey take us in the path with what led you into this area tell us a little bit about your career and and how you got where you're where you are now well, I think I've sort of backed into it. A lot of the law enforcement officers I worked with over my whole career always dreamed about being a police officer. And for me, it was something else. My grandfather was a prolific writer, and I grew up always knowing that I was going to be a writer and wanted to be a reporter. And I, my undergraduate degree was in journalism, and I became a reporter out of school. And I, I had this break in between uh, reporter jobs, and I saw an ad for a, a private investigator intern position. And I was like, you know, this would, this would be a really fun job to do to, to get a little werewolf experience in that field and uh, maybe write a book about it later. And I got into it, and I just became so enamored with the people that I was working with and, and the, having, having a real mission and doing some good in the world and the excitement of law enforcement. And it, it, just, it was really a left turn for me, and I meant to do it for a short period of time, but I ended up taking a job with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office down in uh, Tampa, Florida. You know, it took me a while to get into law enforcement. It took me about a year or a year and a half once I decided that that was a path I wanted to take. And I'm sure a lot of police officers had similar uh, difficulty getting in. And then, you know, from there, I just I fell in love with it. And I ended up joining DEA so I could go federal. And I just this year retired after a little over 20 years with DEA. Well, thank you for your service, both for Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department and, and DEA. And i got to give a little shout out. I was detailed to DEA task force in Baltimore. That but was you, my but, big, one of my big claims to fame back in the day. Yeah, don't worry about it, Jeffrey. He wasn't in the narco unit. No, I was just a, a street <laughs> cop, and there's nothing wrong with it. Some of the, and I, I don't want to stereotype and paint everybody with a broad brush, some of the absolute best agents that I worked with in the DEA were police officers and former law enforcement be sheriffs, deputies, or whatever it might be that had street experience that went in the DEA from there, as compared to some that were recruited right out of college. And I don't want to say it's a negative, other ones, a lot of them turned out great, but man, by and large, they, those people were phenomenal. You know, there's no substitute for being a police officer first. There's something about, like, every day. Like, I spent years in patrol, which is about as much fun as you can have in law enforcement. You know, I worked in street crimes. I did undercover. We did a lot of uh, search warrants. I was on those street crimes, like, tactical team. And I, you just can't you can't find that kind of experience like in federal law enforcement, where every single day you're talking to suspects and you're learning to read body language and understanding what speech patterns are like when people are lying, you know, and and, and, and coming face to face with bad guys and with victims and, and really seeing you know the whole breadth of, of of the law enforcement experience on a daily basis. And so the, the guys who are cops, the agents that I worked with that, that had worked in law enforcement 
hit the ground running. You know, they knew how to talk to people. They knew how to build cases. They understood what evidence was, as opposed to people who came from different walks of life. And that is not to demean them either, because, you know, people who are accountants first before they join federal law enforcement or attorneys bring a whole other skill set, which is also really valuable. But really, I, I would highly recommend if somebody wants to get into federal law enforcement that they work as a police officer first. Agreed. Ditto. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jeffrey James Higgins. We're going to be exploring narco-terrorism, his career at the DEA, and what you need to be aware of. We'll be right back in just a few moments. This is Law Enforcement Today. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 3ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.the3ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 3ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you A. Get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B. Find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C. Show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. As a small business owner, there's one word that you absolutely dread. Payroll. For small businesses, it's a big burden. You may think you're saving time and money doing it yourself. But come on, are you? Timesheets, processing checks, calculating taxes, a total waste of your time. Paychecks simplifies payroll processing, saving you time and money. Submit your payroll online, fax it in, or call your dedicated Paychecks payroll specialist. And you're done! Learn more at trypaychecks.com. Come on, do the math. The IRS dishes out 8 million penalties a year. Make one mistake and you're on the hook. On average, you're losing nearly one business day every month doing payroll. That's time and money you'll never get back, unless you get paychecks. More than half a million small businesses already do. Call 877-375-3164. Trade payroll pressure for peace of mind. Call now. 877-375-3164. That's 877-375-3164. We are back. This is Law Enforcement Today. Jeffrey, why don't you elaborate more about uh, your career falling into the narco-terrorism field? Well, I joined DEA after about five years of working as a deputy sheriff for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, and I, I selected New York. Uh, a lot of people around the country, when I was coming out of the DEA Academy, you got to put in where your choices were. Most people didn't want to go to New York, but I picked it as my first choice because I knew it would be you know, really being thrown into the fire, and that's where so many transnational criminal groups were, were based in. It was a point of entry for narcotics. There was all kinds of organized crime and terrorism, and you know, really uh, just a central location if you want to go after just the worst of the worst. So I, I worked in New York for about seven years, 
And uh, during that time, I was I was focused mostly on the violent end of it. Like that, that's what always interests me about uh, drug enforcement. I like using the laws to go after violence because I thought the people who are committing murders, the people who are you know torturing people, the, these are these are the targets. With regardless of what you feel about drugs, these are the kinds of people that need to be taken off the street. So I, I was in New York doing those kinds of cases uh, for years. And then 9-11 happened, and I, I was one of the first uh, people who responded to the North Tower. It was myself and a NYPD uh, officer and a Suffolk County uh, detective were the first three people to get to the North Tower after it came down. And sort of from that moment on, my entire career took a, took a different trajectory, and I focused on nothing but terrorism. I'm trying to picture being a DEA agent and then having 9-11 happen and be there on the scene of that horrific event, number one, which I, I can't imagine, then number two, how it transported your entire career in a totally different direction. What was it like in a, a synopsis? We've all heard the stories, but your personal experience with 9-11, how would you describe it? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, obviously when you have a major terrorist event like that, it's a, it's a huge shock. You know, I was start, starting a normal day when the attacks happened like everybody else, but I jumped in my car and I drove uh, down to the World Trade Center. Our office was only a couple miles north on the west side of Manhattan. And I remember coming down the west side highway and seeing just thousands of people, like pedestrians on the side of the road, streaming up along the river, trying to get away from it. And myself and a handful of police cars, because, you know, this is what police do. We, we run into the danger when something's coming, um, which it really sets police apart. And I think the personalities that go into police work sets them apart from everybody else in that way. But, you know, we drove, drove down there. And as I was coming down the West Side Highway, I heard the radio call that the uh, one of the towers had fallen. And I came around to bend and I could see just the one smoking tower and the other one gone. I'll never forget that. Wow. And I re- responded to our office and um, there were, you know, it was chaos, as you can imagine. And there were a handful of us, I think we had 12, 12 agents who got together and we just wrote our names down. And we decided we weren't going to wait for direction because if we waited for management to say something, they may never let us go. So 12 of us just got in our cars and drove down to the scene and as just as we before we got there the second tower came down the north tower came down so it was just chaos down there as well and you know i remember talking to uh, nypd uh, uh, commander who was there and to a port authority police chief who was down there and every bar police commander and everybody just had no idea what to do at that point so i ended up just walking down there and bumped into the suffolk county a detective who i worked on a, a, a racketeering case with years wow. ago just walked, kind of walked out of the smoke, and the two of us joined up with this with this uh, NYPD officer, and the three of us went down there, and you know we we gave aid. We found uh, some bodies in the rubble. There were obviously a lot of dead people. One guy was still uh, breathing, and we searched vehicles. I mean, it, it was like a, it was like a horror story, you know. I mean, there were there were flames shooting out of the ground. There were huge cavern cavernous holes where pieces of the World Trade Center had, you know, gone right through the ground and opened up into, like, the underground parking areas and things. I mean, it was really kind of a treacherous scene. I, w- I was searching one uh, fire truck, and I remember getting off of it, and then seconds later it burst into flames. You know, I mean, it was, it was, just, it was just nuts. I mean, this is downtown Manhattan. You know, yeah, you just, you just, it's something that takes a while to get over watching, you know, jets flying low over the, over the island. And I, I swore right there that I was going to try to find some justice for that. So from that point on, the only thing I really cared about was terrorism. And so the DEA put you on a path for investigating and becoming an expert on narco-terrorism. Is that an understatement? 
Well, because of my position, it certainly took a couple of years for for DEA to really get its hands around its role. I mean, DEA is a single mission federal agency, you know, enforcing the federal narcotics laws. And there was a lot of pushback within DEA about uh, getting involved with terrorism because they felt like they could either get subsumed by the uh, Department of Homeland Security or they could, uh, you know, be pulled into a different direction away from the single mission. So there was a lot of, not everybody, but there was a lot of internal pressure not to get involved with terrorism. But eventually, the, the great uh, skill sets that are within DEA and kind of the unique um, methods of, of investigating crimes that are done in drug enforcement, uh, we, we realized that it applied perfectly to counterterrorism. And so, yeah, eventually they got very involved with it. And when they opened up their office in uh, Afghanistan, I was, I was one of the first two permanent agents assigned there. That had to be invigorating. Here you are, I guess, like a pioneer into narco-terrorism. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there was certainly a different form of narco-terrorism that had been around, you know, a lot in, in Central America. Like, you, you know, you think of the classic, uh, the classic narco-terrorism is a drug trafficking group that's committing acts of terror as a way to further their business interests. You know, like Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel, that, that sort of model where they're going after prosecutors and judges and police and terrifying people, as it, but just to make money. And then after 9-11, there was this real shift, and it was driven by DEA. Some sometime after I think 2003, when there was some congressional testimony, when they were talking about now we're looking at these ideologically motivated groups who are engaged in drug trafficking, but they're only doing it as a as a way to fund their you know ideological uh, goals. So this is like you know the Islamic groups and the other groups that are that are looking to commit terror, and they don't care where the money's coming from. But right. drugs is obviously a great way to, to to make it. One of the things that I tell people routinely and they don't like to hear from me it's like and they say well what's the problem it's a victimless crime if i buy a bag of marijuana or uh let's say uh, uh methamphetamine or whatever and, and i tell them you realize the money that you're spending on that is going south of the border to fund these groups that are killing people and killing these judges and their families and putting them in 55 gallon drums and all that stuff and they they don't tend to believe me is there any accuracy to that statement it's it's very accurate. As a matter of fact, I wrote a op-ed in the Washington Times about six months ago just about that. You know, I, I think there's some really good arguments for legalization and for decriminalization of a lot of drugs, not all, but a lot of them. But regardless of, you know, where you feel about that, the, the fact that drugs are illegal means that criminal enterprises are the ones that are, are manufacturing and transporting and distributing these drugs. And so when you have criminal groups doing this, they're not able to avail themselves of the uh, judicial system. You know, they, 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 can't, they can't go to a judge and say, I've just been ripped off. <laughs> they, can't, they can't call the police when somebody's threatening them. So they have to uh, be able to um, forcibly protect themselves in their own business interests so because drugs are illegal you're going to see violent criminal groups that are in it so when you're buying drugs even if you think they should be legal because they're illegal your money is going to a violent criminal group that's doing just horrible things and we can all attest to the level of violence just on the american streets uh without the term of narco-terrorism but that would apply to the street cocaine and heroin gangs that are shooting each other left and right and shooting into houses and uh, it's just it's almost like um these criminal gangs on the street level here in America are doing the same thing that the big narco-terrorist groups are doing, but on a, a more local scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like, if, if you were to legalize drugs, you would take a lot of that violence out of it. 
you know, the fact that drugs are prohibited. Whenever you have a prohibition, you always get these kinds of uh, criminal groups that that put, fall into the black market because somebody has to be able to produce this stuff out, outside of the legitimate economy. So, I mean, they're, they're, you're talking about, you know, trillions of dollars that get spent in this black market where, where drugs are. So you, you, would, you would remove that. But a lot of times police get criticized for their role in the drug war because of all the negative unintended outcomes. And there's plenty, right? You know, plenty of bad things that happen when we, from this war that aren't, aren't intended. But when police get criticized, a lot of times people don't realize that the people they're targeting, by and large, and I'm talking about the criminal groups, you know, not, not, not the guy who's growing like marijuana in his backyard or something, but these criminal groups are really bad, violent actors. And, they're, and if drugs were legal, they would go into another illicit criminal activity. You're not going to uh, you're not going to legalize drugs, and the MS-13 gang that's been selling them isn't going to turn around and open up a bed and breakfast the next week. <laughs> so you know, so you, you, so what police are doing is is really a valuable service when you're targeting violent groups like this, and that that's what I did throughout my career. You know, that's such an excellent point you make. Uh, it's just convincing. Uh, I guess it's the word collateral damage on some of the things we do. And of course, unfortunately, the media jumps in and, and focuses it on the negative things and not not what we just put a cartel out of business. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, and the, the, the people I targeted in New York, for example, with some of these racketeering cases, they were torturing people and doing home invasions and murdering people. I mean, they, they were lawless people who believed in using force against other citizens. And the number one role of government is to prevent citizens from using force against each other. So the work that we did there was excellent. And yes, the reason they were dealing drugs was because of the high profit margins, and that's created because of scarcity, because it's a prohibited substance. So that's why they were in that business. But they would definitely be doing other bad things. As a matter of fact, they do do other things. So when I charged like a racketeering case in New York, we were charging all these other crimes that they were involved in, because there's uh, huge linkages between organized crime and drug trafficking. It was a, I don't know if you're familiar with the UNODC, the, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. They do a, a world drug report every year, and the 20. 17 report showed they I think it was just Europe but they looked at organized crime in Europe and it was 35 to 50 percent of the organized criminal groups in Europe were engaged in drug trafficking and 20 to I want to say 33 percent something like that 20 to 35 percent somewhere in that area of the income for those groups came from drug trafficking so there's there are huge huge linkages between the two we certainly have to have the discussion the conversation regardless of how people feel politically about if not legalization, then decriminalization, because one of the most violent times in our history, especially for law enforcement, was the prohibition. We had more police officers killed, I think, in 1930, second only to uh, September 11, 2001. That was the most violent time, and it created more shootings and bombings right here, just because of what you said. When you prohibit something, it goes to black market, then you have criminal gangs that will use whatever amount of force necessary to protect their interests. Uh, so what are you doing now? Uh, you, you're retired and uh, you're a busy guy. What are you up to? I'm writing a book about narco-terrorism. Of course. <laughs> so it's, that's right. I just finished it. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm in the editing process right now and my agent's shopping it around. But the working title is called The Narco-Terrorist, and it's about the, the first narco-terrorism case and about DEA, DEA's entry into the global war on terror. So really, I'm trying to explain how a bunch of narcotics agents in the U.S. ended up chasing terrorists around the world. And it, it, it was a, it was an interesting evolution, and there's some great stories along the way. And I, I talk about my time in Afghanistan, which has some really exciting stuff. And then um, the 
pending with the, this first case against Han Mohammed, who was the first arrest and conviction for uh, narco terrorism. So your, your career has gone full circle. You, mm-hmm. you initially started out to become a journalist, and bada bing, bada boom, there you go. I sucked you into the field of law enforcement. <laughs> now, now was that a con- right. was that a conscious thing, Jeffrey? Did you eventually know? In other words, as you're going through our law enforcement career, we're always thinking about, hey, what am I going to do when I get done? You know. What, yeah, it, I was that a conscious that writing? Okay. Yeah, it, it was conscious, and I knew I would. But at a certain, you know, I was, I was, it's very interesting, and I, I think really productive things in law enforcement. So I wanted to keep at it while I was doing it. And then once I came close to retirement, you know, and that, that that's the thing when you when you get retirement, when you have pensions, and you're getting close to it, you want to keep doing what you're doing. So you know, I stayed in there for the last few years, and and now I'm uh, now I'm just going to write full time. So the book is not published yet. You got to do us a big favor. When it is available, what's the working title again? The Narco Terrorist. The Narco Terrorist. When the book is available, you got to let us know so that uh, we can have you back on the show to talk about it. Is that good? Yeah, I certainly will. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting story, and there, there's there's it's, it's an exciting book. I mean, it it reads like fiction. You know, some of the things that we were involved with, and I it's, bet. A, it's a it's a compelling narrative. And what is your website again? So people get more information. Uh, JeffreyJamesHiggins.com. So you can find my recent media appearances and articles on there. All right. Jeffrey, James Higgins, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Keep up the good work over there. I really enjoy uh, law enforcement today. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Every show we get done with like this always affirms the reason that I got into this great profession. And, and what we do, I love being a police. I know you do, too. I know so many people out there do, and it's a big misconception about what policing is all about, and it's really driven by the media. And what we try to do here at Law Enforcement Today is we try to provide an alternative to all that media spin and bias by law enforcement officers, active, retired like me, their family members, supporters, coming in talking about their experience, their perspective. It's not a confrontational thing. If someone wants to be a guest on a show, we can accommodate them from anywhere. Uh, you can call in our studios. We'll record you. What do they do? Just contact us many, many places. LawEnforcementToday.com. Go to the bottom contact us page on Facebook. You can contact us there. Leave us a personal message. Or you can email Jay and I directly at Jay at Law Enforcement Today or Robert at Law Enforcement Today. The main thing is we want to hear from you. It's a radio show for you, about you. And it's not just for law enforcement people. It's for the community. It's for everyone. So uh, be sure to check us out. On behalf of everyone associated from Law Enforcement Today, I'm John J. Wally. Till next time, see ya. Mm-hmm.